this is Kara Foster from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Madisonville, Kentucky, and you're listening to our sermons podcast. And if you want to find out more information, you can connect with us at www.madisonvilledisciples.org or come in person at 1030 College Drive on Madisonville, Kentucky. Subscribe and enjoy these podcasts. Thank you, choir, and Alice, and Bill for that wonderful piece this morning. We continue today to look at the people who Jesus met and interacted with throughout his life and his ministry. And we come to a room full of people who are quite possibly the most thankful people to see Jesus in the book of John. We see Martha, we see Mary, and we see their brother Lazarus. Now, Lazarus, of course, is one of the most famous people in the Bible who isn't a disciple of Jesus. And I could argue that you'll probably get to Lazarus before you get all 12 of those disciples in. Mostly because he has one of the more extraordinary stories in Scripture. He is the one who Jesus raised from the dead. In a bit of foreshadowing for Jesus' own death and resurrection, he raises Lazarus in the chapter before this. Lazarus has a feast today celebrated by millions. He's included in hundreds of worship songs and, of course, has one of the best personal stories of the life-changing power of Christ. And I want to spend today actually talking about everyone else in the room except Lazarus because he gets too much of the attention, I think. But first, let's read the story itself, shall we? Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave him a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about it, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. This is one of my favorite types of stories because I believe that everyone in this story, even Judas, is kind of right. <clears throat> and I think in most of our conflicts, whether we want to admit it or not, most people are at least kind of right. Recently, I've been reading a fantastic book called How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. Now, I was already perfect, but I thought I'd brush up on, on the topic. And despite its grandiose claim, uh, it's a pretty basic book that talks about how we live morally and the questions that we ask. Uh, and part of the conceit of the book is that everything kind of has a downside. Uh, you make yourself aware of an issue, you try to live right and within your morals, but still somehow you end up falling short. The first example in the book is one we're probably really familiar with. You learn about the environment. You try to take better care of the things. Uh, you buy certain products. You live ethically. But inevitably, 
you're going to end up using a plastic fork at a kid's birthday party or out of convenience grab a styrofoam cup on Sunday morning and you're going to think, oh, that's really bad. I know that's really bad. Why did I do that? Because we can't be perfectly moral 100% of the time. And in this book, they break down all the different moral philosophers who had various things to say about how we live ethically. And of course, Jesus is mentioned more than a few times. Jesus has some amazing teachings about nonviolence, about acceptance, about loving the poor, and your neighbor, and your enemy. But here, Jesus' words feel a bit like a contradiction. How can this man, who feeds the hungry, who heals people without expecting payment, who speaks up for the widow who has her home stolen by the powerful, how could Jesus seem to dismiss the poor so callously when he's built his entire ministry on meeting, and highlighting, and helping these people? I believe the key to understanding this relies on what we have seen, not just in the previous chapter of John, but in the entire gospel beforehand. See, when you study the gospel of John, Smart people with a lot of letters after their names break it down into three parts. And the first 11 chapters are called the Book of Signs. And this is because in almost every chapter, Jesus does something miraculous. Walking on water, feeding of the 5,000, and of course, the resurrection of Lazarus. See, John doesn't concern himself with the details as much. There's no birth narrative. Uh, there's no Jesus' baptism. There's no Sermon on the Mount. There's no genealogies in the book of John. John drops right in, talking about all the ways you can know who Christ is as the Messiah. The disciples are living with Christ and seeing these wonders. And like I said, it culminates in the rising of Lazarus. And there's a short section following it about a plot to kill Jesus. And then immediately we get to this dinner scene. And dinners are huge in the New Testament, and everyone needs to eat, no matter the situation. And gathering around the table is something that's done in tragedy and in triumph on ordinary and extraordinary days. After we get married, what do we do? We share a meal. After a funeral, what do we do? We go to the church or someone's home, and we break bread. After a child is born, a mother needs food and medicine and a community around which to recover. I like to imagine this meal happening the next day or the next week. All the observers and well-wishers have left, all the gawkers who want to know if it's true that Lazarus raised from the dead, they've all went on with their lives, and it's just the core people who matter. It is in this moment that we see conflict arise around Mary's act towards Jesus. But we don't, we've never gotten a fight at dinner with a family member or a friend. No one in this room would have ever done that. See, without going too far into the weeds, this anointing that Mary does shows her love of Christ, but it also is reminiscent of the burial ritual that Jesus would undergo in just six days. Therefore, Jesus is being prepared by Mary for his death and resurrection, but so are his followers in the room. And by extension, so are we, who live thousands of years later. We are being prepared by Mary for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But as I was reading this section and reading through John, I wondered why. How does Mary even know that Jesus is going to die in the Gospel of John? 
Jesus never predicts his death before this happens. So how can Mary possibly know? My answer that I came up with this week is that Mary is one of those very wise women in our lives who know exactly what we need before we even have a clue that we need it. Who among us hasn't felt that or hasn't had a feeling that someone or something needs to be done? There's no real reason, but you have an intuition. You were led by the Spirit, and so we listened. We reached out to someone who didn't ask for it, and then they needed it. One time, a group of friends and I were in Chicago, and my friend Brad was traveling with us, and he had never been to or seen a baseball game at any level, little league, nothing. So we all decided to go to Wrigley Field for his first game. It was Cubs versus Cardinals. We ended up with great seats along the first baseline. We all sat in a group, and we were all really enjoying the game. But Brad had kind of, off by himself, was pretty lost about what was going on. And admittedly, none of us really noticed. We were all just happy to have the night off. Well, next to him was this nice older gentleman who started talking to Brad. And upon realizing that he had no idea what was going on, spent the entire game explaining every aspect of baseball to him. How base running worked, the history of the Cubs and the Cardinals, how you could tell the difference between pitches. And then at the end of the night, he took out a $2 bill and gave it to Brad. Apparently, this gentleman carried these $2 bills around with him everywhere he went. And he gave them out when he ran into people who he thought was having an important day in their lives that they needed to remember. But he gave it to Brad. This older man, whose name I don't remember, was with his own friends and family. He could have ignored Brad just as easily as all of Brad's friends were ignoring Brad. But he didn't. Call it the spirit, call it intuition, or call it empathy. But he was led to offer support to my friend because he could just tell that he needed it. I believe that Mary was the same way. She knew Jesus needed it, and she knew everyone in the room needed it. Everyone needed something special that night as they all gathered together. So she decided to use the most expensive thing she had to do something meaningful. And everyone found it meaningful. Except Judas. Judas, the bad guy to end all bad guys in the Bible. Now, if I'm being honest, I kind of gravitate towards the bad guy in every story. I always like to see their perspective and understand where they are coming from. I'm the guy who's like, well, you know, I think he's got a point there. I know I drive Bill crazy when I do it in the office. He just wants to complain about something. And I'm like, hey, you got to see their side of it. Even if I don't always agree with them, I feel the need to give everybody a fair shake. And honestly, it's pretty easy to see Judas's point of view on this one. It was very expensive. It was excessive. And it's very true that selling the perfume could have done a lot of good. But John even reminds this, us as the audience that Judas betrays Jesus, just in case we miss, they're going to miss it in two chapters later. John really wants us to know that Judas was the bad guy. The bad guy or not, he makes a valid point. None of them were particularly wealthy. And that money, a whole year's worth of wages, could do a lot. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, Judas must have missed what happened between the last chapter and this chapter. 
Because it wasn't money Jesus needed. It was for his followers to prepare themselves for what was about to come. Judas's question is not an improper one. He knows the value of the money and what it could do. But the appropriate time to worry about the finances of the ministry had passed. And the focus of Christ had shifted. It's like, what's the best advice you can give your children when they get older? Save money. Save for your future. Plan to do it. Start a retirement. I got to tell you, when I got here, the amount of people who told me to make sure I was putting at least 14% back every single month for when I turned 65, they were adamant that I do that. And it's great advice. Everyone gets it. But we all know this, that sometimes the time to save has to stop. We need a new house because our family is growing. Our car is unsafe, so we have to buy something new. Sometimes times cause you to shift focus. That's just life. We prepare for one thing and all of a sudden a new something arises and takes our attention. And we have to shift our focus or else we live in a world where we deny our reality. Jesus is shifting his focus and Mary is helping bring the disciples along from focusing on the ministry here on earth to focusing on his upcoming arrest, death, and resurrection. He spent the first 11 chapters showing the people the signs. Now the rest of the gospel shows us his final days of his earthly ministry while highlighting his resurrection and his reconciliation of relationships. He's ready to take the next step. Not that healing and feeding and miracles are unworthy. Lives were changed. But Jesus, like all of us at some point in our lives, is ready to shift focus. So I ask, when have you had to shift your focus? May have been a health scare where you realize that the way you are living is detrimental to you living longer. It may have been a moment where you realize that you needed more out of life than your career would allow. It may have been when you realized that where you had always been was no longer where you fit. One of those shifts for me was when I was finishing up college. I wanted to do ministry instead of doing my plan. My plan was always to become a college professor. I'd always loved studying and learning about different topics from history to theology. I still obviously do. And as my final year of college was approaching, I faced a decision. Where do I go? Do I go to continue this academic work or do I go to a seminary and learn more about the workings of the church? I had taken classes that had prepared me to do, to get this PhD, to teach, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to teach about faith. I wanted to live it. I remember standing outside the science building at Bethel University with my philosophy professor, Dr. John Carlock, one of the greatest men who ever taught me. And I was telling him that I had decided to pursue ministry instead of academics. He was an ordained reverend himself, but he was shocked, but supportive. Every decision I had made was working towards a certain goal. And for him, it came out of left field that I decided to change something different. But for me, I knew in my spirit that I had to make a real shift or else I would be unhappily spinning my wheels. So I changed my plan. And I went to seminary with no real concrete idea of where I would end up. I just wanted to do the work. And eventually, I found out where I ended up. See, Jesus was preparing for his crucifixion. 
Mary was preparing for a life without Jesus with her. And Judas, our titular villain, was holding on to the past and was against a shift in focus. Judas was left behind by this. Like Peter, I have no doubt in my mind that Christ would have welcomed Judas back. Christ's ministry shifted from being a street preacher in Galilee and Jerusalem to welcoming the entire world. All peoples, Gentiles, and betrayers. But Judas couldn't make it back. The reality of Easter is in part that our worlds will shift focus. Our families will grow. Our circles will expand. Our friends will change. And Christ will call us to love even bigger and include even more people. As they approached Easter, I'm willing to bet the disciples never could have guessed that their churches would be more Gentiles than Jews in a hundred years. I bet they never could have guessed the persecution that the church would face over the next 300 years. And I bet they never could have guessed that 2,000 years later, we'd be talking about a dinner that they shared six days before Passover. I believe Jesus could have continued his ministry for a long time. He could have listened to Judas and only focused on the next ministry and the next town and the next person. But Jesus had shifted his focus and was ready for the cross and the empty tomb. The shift is why we get ready for Easter. So as we follow Christ into Jerusalem next week, I invite all of us to follow where your focus is shifted. To follow that focus where Christ offers it. Not by neglecting the needs of the world but by expanding our love, our welcome, and to celebrate what Christ has done and continues to do.